we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Don't forget to check out my vlog. You can click the link above or get the information down in the description. Thanks. Mental health is something we still don't talk about enough in today's society. Sure, most are far more aware of the effects it can have on a person nowadays, but with there still being something of a stigma around it, many who are struggling can often be forced to let their condition fester. In some cases, it can result in people reaching a point that they lose sight of not only themselves, but of everyone else around them as well. Of course, that's nothing compared to what happened in the case of Julie Schenecker, because when she fell, she continued to spiral downward until she reached a point where she was capable of carrying out an unforgivable act, something that no parent should be able to do. This is Monsters. Growing up in Muscatine, Iowa, the Pearl of Mississippi and one-time home of Mark Twain, life at first glance seemed to be somewhat picturesque for the eldest daughter of Jim and Patty Peterson Powers. On the outside looking in, she had everything she could possibly want. She was pretty, well-liked by her peers, and was a talented athlete, with her particularly excelling in both track and basketball. In fact, according to Sylvia Carroll, a childhood friend of Julie's, quote, she was the epitome of what wholesome is. You wanted to be like her. That opinion of the all-American young woman carried on into her time at college where, while studying at the University of Northern Iowa, she added to her list of accomplishments by serving as the star hitter and blocker for their volleyball team. Unfortunately, though, hidden underneath the surface of this sunny exterior was a more challenging side because Julie could be very demanding of her teammates. She often expressed heavy disapproval toward them whenever she thought they were slacking off. And this competitive attitude also extended toward her love life, as she wasn't shy about telling both friends and colleagues who were competing for the affections of the same young man that she was, that she would be the one winning their hearts by hook or by crook. Despite her type A personality sometimes putting her at odds with others, she was largely well-liked anyway. So when a bout of the flu caused her to play poorly in a Division I championship game, shattering her hopes of a professional volleyball career in the process, most were upset for her and wanted to help pick her back up. Not that they needed to, though, because with the drive Julie had, it wouldn't be long before she was able to find a new path in life. 
That path came shortly after she graduated in 1982 when she signed up with the United States Army and got sent over to the Army Language School in Monterey, California in order to learn Russian. After that, she began working as a Russian linguist. Of course, learning a new language was only the tip of the iceberg of what she'd be doing. On top of that, she became fully immersed in the culture, religion, economy, and value systems of that particular nation. That suited her fine because, being as driven as she was, Julie Powers was able to excel beyond the expectations of her superiors. As a result of that drive, in 1987, she was assigned to the 18th Military Intelligence Battalion in Munich, Germany, where she was tasked with interviewing refugees coming in from the Eastern Bloc and gathering intelligence from them. Like with everything else in her life up until that point, Sergeant Powers carried out her duties to a high level. What's more, her Type A personality would no longer create conflicts with her peers because, as a former colleague put it, quote, Everybody we worked with was type A because of the nature of the business. Everything was going great for the young woman from Iowa. The only thing that was missing was a partner in which to share the good times. But that would soon come too, as while coaching the men's army volleyball team, Julie first met Parker Scheneker, a senior leader and strategist of the United States intelligence community. With the two hitting it off immediately, it wasn't long before they were officially dating. Come 1990, the pair were briefly separated when, while Julie remained stationed in Munich, Parker was transferred over to Fort Huachuca in southeast Arizona where he worked as an instructor for a while. This turned out to be the starting point for a lot of Julie's mental health problems, because it was while apart from her partner that she was first diagnosed with depression. But rather than come clean with her boyfriend about it once they were reunited in 1992, she kept it a secret apparently ashamed of such a perceived weakness on her part. It wouldn't be until after the two were married later that year on October 10th that she finally opened up about what was going on. Of course, any worries she may have had about her new husband looking down on her because of her illness proved to be fruitless as Parker not only accepted Julie's depression, he embraced it. So much did he embrace it, in fact, that by 1994 he was able to convince her to leave the army and become a stay-at-home mom, something he felt would serve her emotional state better following the good news the two had recently received about their soon-to-be-growing family. That's right, Julie had become pregnant earlier in the year. That would lead to their daughter Calix being born on September 12, 1994 in nearby Rosenberg, Germany. But that wouldn't be a location they remained in for long because soon thereafter, Parker was transferred once more to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. Still, at least this meant they got to settle down in the Midwest for a while as they got to terms with both being new parents and dealing with Julie's illness. Unfortunately, even that wouldn't be a permanent home as, once his time in Kansas was done, Parker and the rest of the family would be shifted around multiple times, going to places as far away as Hawaii where, on September 25, 1997, their household grew to include a second child, a son named Bo. To those who knew them, this was a very happy time, but it was actually a great struggle for Julie as she suffered terrible postpartum depression following the birth. That caused her to have to go back on antidepressants. When her husband was called back to the U.S. mainland in the winter of 1998, she decided she didn't want to move back there quite yet as she was enjoying the warmer climate of Hawaii and the effect it was having on her mental health. 
As someone who spent most of his life living in the Pacific Northwest, I can tell you that the lack of vitamin D can definitely affect your mood. That was what led her and the kids staying behind for an additional six months while Parker returned to the East Coast to continue with his duties. Despite the hopes being that the extra time in Hawaii would help Julie get better, things only continued to worsen. She felt like she was watching as her husband got to live the military lifestyle she had once wanted for herself, which caused her depression to return. In 2001, she suffered a severe episode. It was so bad that she ended up being hospitalized at a National Institute of Health facility. While there, further light was shed on her mental state as she was diagnosed with both bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder, two conditions that will see a person alternate between episodes of high-level mania and extreme depression, all while also showing symptoms such as loss of contact with reality and states of psychosis. Obviously, that was a major cause of concern for the family. But at the very least, there was renewed hope that, now with a formal diagnosis, work could begin on treating Julie properly for the first time in her life. While doctors spent the next nine months doing just that as Julie remained in an inpatient facility, Parker took up full-time duties of raising the kids, albeit with a little help from both his mother and a nanny that he had hired. This seemed to work wonders, at least for a while because, with the continued therapy, come 2003, Julie was deemed well enough to return to Germany with her husband for a family celebration. By the time 2005 rolled around, problems were beginning to arise again as, feeling like her medication was leaving her altogether numb, the mother of two had stopped taking it. Not long after they relocated to Odenton, Maryland in 2005, Julie went through a six-month period of intense mania which often left her agitated, unable to control her temper, and with a flurry of delusional beliefs. But while she may have been happy to remain in such a state if it meant she could feel something, Parker was not okay with it. That was why, in early 2006, unable to handle her outbursts anymore, he forced his wife to go to Walter Reed Hospital for further treatment. Of course, this wasn't the only big situation the family was going through at that point, though, because, elsewhere in his personal life, Parker had received news that he was finally going to be made colonel and moved to the United States Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. This unfortunately meant that, whether it was good for her stability or not, Julie and her kids would have to be relocated again, this time to Boiling Springs, a township in Cumberland County. Perhaps surprisingly, this move did not cause her to slip into either a manic or depressive state as some had feared it would. No, partially as a result of the quiet and calming atmosphere of the town, Julie's mental health somewhat stabilized. As if that wasn't good enough news, the kids seemed to be doing well in their new home too. After years of constantly having their lives moved around, both Calix and Bo were finally able to lay down some roots and make some friends amongst the local children living there. But as was probably always to be expected, this brief haven of paradise would only be temporary because just two years later in 2008, Parker was restationed once again, this time to Tampa, Florida. While that would finally prove to be a more long-term settling point for the family, it was also the period where Julie first became aware of the work of German New Age author Eckhart Tolle. Why was that important? Well, after reading about his thoughts on identity in his self-help book entitled A New Earth, Awaken Your Life's Purpose, 
the troubled young woman took to viewing her own mental state from a different perspective. But then why wouldn't she, because according to what he claimed, none of our identities were to be derived from our senses of who we are, but rather from who we wanted to be. So Julie saw in that a new hope for herself, one that meant she didn't have to focus on the voice in her head struggling with mental illness as being the real version of herself. She felt emboldened to seek out a better self instead, something that could initially be seen as a good thing. Now, that wasn't all she took from the teachings of Tall, however. No, and perhaps a more troubling learning experience, given the acts she would later commit. Julie was also taken with a particular comment in a prior book of his which stated that death was merely an illusion. So it should go without saying that the majority of Eckhart Tolle's writing has largely been derided as spiritual mumbo-jumbo by experts on the subject. It was something that may provide help to a minority, but had no real basis in either science or medicine. The psychiatric community believed it shouldn't be used as a substitute for psychotherapy, especially if you were suffering from the kind of serious condition that Julie was. But she wasn't interested in such pleas by now. As far as she saw it, something was finally working for her, and why would she throw that away in order to continue on with the same old medication and therapy that had only brought her temporary relief in the past? When you look at it from that perspective, it's easy to understand her point of view. After all, the medical community doesn't have the answer to every question. How could they? None of us do. And regardless of how others felt about this validity, the teachings of Tall were certainly working for Julie. By 2009, she had managed to make a number of friends in the area and was even feeling well enough to take part in various charity events around Tampa with those friends. She was even well enough to return back home to Iowa later that same year for a reunion with her old college friends. And while those friends quickly noticed how different she seemed, far less bubbly and more subdued than before, she claimed to be her old self, someone who was living a happy life with her family. Despite her claims that things were different now and the teachings of Tall had opened her up to a whole new world of knowledge, without proper medication and psychotherapy, it was always going to be a matter of time before issues began to resurface. So it should come as little surprise when on November 6th, 2010, police were called to the Scheneker house to investigate allegations of child abuse. That's right, even if things looked rosier than ever to the outside world, with Julie appearing better and both Calix and Bo doing well at school, clearly there were still problems. Enough to where Calix would actually report her mother to the police after she was allegedly hit across the face. Now, it should be noted that as far as Parker was concerned, much of what was happening at home was happening without his knowledge. With him still serving in the military, he was often called away from home for lengthy periods of time. This obviously only added to the stresses of his troubled wife as she increasingly found it difficult to effectively raise two kids by herself. The police, on the other hand, certainly weren't as understanding. No, they took this case of child abuse very seriously, especially since, in the weeks leading up to the call, Calix had started counseling at the Children's Crisis Center in Tampa after it was noticed her behavior had started to change at school. When the young girl explained to the officers that four days prior to them being called on November 2nd, she was being driven home from cross-country practice by her mother and had been repeatedly hit across the face with a series of open-palmed strikes, they had a lot of follow-up questions. 
Why had Julie decided to physically assault her daughter? Well, Julie explained that apparently the two had gotten into an argument when, after stopping off at the grocery store, Calix wouldn't show her mother what she had just purchased. Instead, she told her mother to stay out of her business as she was disgusting and, quote, not her real parent. After that, the beating began, something that Julie did not dispute took place, although she did dispute the severity of it. And given the fact there was no physical damage left behind, the legal loophole in the state of Florida meant that it was deemed minor enough to where no charges would be filed. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Ooh, we're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Still, even if this incident ended without legal repercussions, it had far further reaching effects in that it shattered the carefully constructed idea of Julie being someone who was doing better and that their family situation was a harmonious one. Even if this was a relatively minor argument, one similar to which many households have probably gone through at times, the fact that Calix felt the need to say something so cutting to her mother, combined with the fact that Julie felt a suitable response to that was to start hitting her across the face, suggested there were deeper-rooted issues being hidden from public view. And yes, you could argue that this is the case for pretty much any family, as we all have a side we show to the world and a side we keep behind closed doors. But usually that shrouded side doesn't involve physical abuse. Abuse that was no doubt heightened by Julie's increasingly disintegrating mental state. On top of that, it usually doesn't require a once bright and happy 16-year-old girl to start going to counseling. Sure, she was a teenager by now, and this time period can play havoc with someone's emotions, but what was happening there was clearly more than just simple teenage angst. If anyone had been paying attention during the months prior, they'd have noticed that Julie was getting worse and worse by the day, something evident in many of the social media posts she made throughout 2010. Her relationship with Calix in particular had been deteriorating for some time, largely on the account of the young girl's growing wariness of opening up to her mother as she knew her poor mental statement it could result in yet another argument. In an attempt to put some distance between herself and her mother, Calix had actually applied to go to boarding school the following year so she wouldn't have to be at home anymore, and some of her friends had started to pick up on this discontent too, with one in particular often inviting her to stay at her house overnight so she could get some distance from Julie. It's just as well she had this escape, brief as it was, as it kept her able to focus on school wear, alongside her brother, she apparently picked up the athletic gene. Not only were both the Schenecker children considered star students on account of their good grades and behavior, but they were also considered star athletes. 
people who may have had bright futures ahead of them in that world if they played their cards right. While their overall future was looking positive, Julie's future was not. Hers was only getting worse and worse because on November 8th, just two days after the police had questioned her on allegations of child abuse, she was involved in a car accident and sent to the hospital. It turned out that the accident was her fault as she'd been driving under the influence, something she'd been doing regularly for some time. After undergoing surgery earlier in that year, Julie had been prescribed OxyContin for pain relief, and like with so many other Americans who were prescribed this particular drug, she soon became addicted to it to the point she couldn't go a day without it. On top of that, she'd also begin drinking heavily, something her husband Parker was aware of. But while he couldn't force her to enter rehab, he could at least forbid her from getting behind the wheel of a car. Or so he thought. It turned out to be a rule she evidently didn't listen to based on the fact she managed to injure both herself and another driver while intoxicated. As a result, Julie was required to enter a 21-day drug rehabilitation program. Once she completed the program, the symptoms of her illness didn't appear to have gotten any better. If anything, they were worse. That was evident in the fact that, aside from continuing to abuse alcohol and Oxycontin, she also cut off all contact with friends and family and would now spend as many as 20 hours a day in bed. Despite that, she still remained chronically tired during those few hours she was up and about, something that's fairly common for those going through a depressive phase of bipolar disorder. At least there was some hope on the horizon as, later that year after agreeing to take part in family therapy, Julie's condition improved somewhat. Due to that, by the time Christmas rolled around, the household seemed to be a happy one once again. Even social workers agreed when they carried out a follow-up visit after the child abuse allegations from months prior, with their findings being that the children seemed happy and that Julie was in an altogether better place. Not to sound like a broken record, but what seemed like a new dawn for a new year ended up being only the calm before the storm. That was because on January 10, 2011, just a couple of weeks later, Parker received news he was to be deployed out to the Middle East immediately. Obviously, concerned about leaving his wife with the responsibility of looking after the kids given that she'd only just gotten herself back into a better place, he discussed with Julie the idea of asking for a delay in his deployment so that they could remain together for a little longer. As far as Julie was concerned, though, that was entirely unnecessary as she believed she would be fine to take care of both Calix and Bo alone. Of course, while she may have felt that way, her family did not. So not long after Parker was shipped out once more, he received an email from a number of them who argued that by leaving her behind at such a critical time, he was risking letting her slip again. Parker took great offense to that as he believed he'd done everything in his power to make sure Julie was being taken care of. In his email response, he made those feelings clear by stating that none of them understood the difficulties of being married to a woman who was so broken. Now, that wasn't meant to be a shot at his wife, but it certainly could have been taken that way. That was why, once Julie found out an email had been sent to their family and asked to see it, her brother refused to forward it along. Rather than put her mind at ease, it only served to make her start worrying about what could have possibly been in that email. With those worries came the beginnings of a fall back into depression. Was her husband unhappy with their marriage? 
Had he finally got tired of her and her issues? Was this a sign that things were coming to an end and he would soon ask for a divorce? These were just some of the thoughts that ran through Julie's mind and it apparently put a stress on her relationship with her kids again too. Around that time, she wrote a journal entry that stated they were being disrespectful towards her and that she was going to have to take care of it. Following that, on January 22nd, she traveled 44 miles or 70 kilometers round trip to a lock and load gun store in order to purchase a weapon that she claimed was for home defense. As she put it, there had been a handful of home invasion robberies in her area as of late and she wanted to make sure her family was safe should such a thing happen to them. Unfortunately for Julie, due to state gun laws, the purchase of the revolver she wanted would be delayed three days while a background check was carried out. Disappointed, she returned home and left an altogether chilling note in her diary that simply read, quote, The massacre will be delayed. Yep, at this point, Julie had made the decision to kill her children and then take her own life with that being the reason she'd chosen to travel to a gun store in a different county as it meant it was less likely it would be noticed by anyone in her family. Why had she decided her kids needed to die? Well, a number of different possible reasons were given after the fact, with one suggestion being that Julie was worried Calix and Bo were going to inherit her mental illness. So, rather than have them spend the rest of their lives suffering like she was, she felt the best thing to do was to put them out of their misery. Of the five types of filicide, this would be referred to as altruistic filicide, a parent killing their child in order to save them from something, a life of poverty or, in this case, an inherited physical or mental health problem. Even a phone call from her husband wouldn't change her mind about her plan. When Parker spoke to her soon after and asked if everything was going okay at home, she simply responded that everything was fine. When he informed her and the rest of the family that he would be returning home soon, she seemed happy about the news, despite her already being well aware that by the time he did return, her plan would already have been enacted. By then, the troubled woman had gotten her hands on the revolver she'd purchased days ago following a successful background check. That's right, despite Julie having a history of mental illness, she had no problem legally purchasing a handgun. So after traveling back home with the weapon on January 27th, she went to her journal once more and wrote out detailed notes on how she was going to kill her children and then end her own life. She'd wait until the following day when the time was right in her mind. Then, when that time came and everything was ready, Julie started the morning by getting up early in order to drive Bo to soccer practice. What her son didn't realize, though, was that she was bringing her revolver along for the ride. And so, when he said something that set her off mid-journey, causing her to pull out her weapon and fire a shot into the windshield, he was understandably terrified. Sure, he knew his mother had a history of instability, but this was another level of danger altogether. That's why he begged her to put the gun away before someone got hurt. Unfortunately for him, however, this request only seemed to anger Julie further, and at that point, she fired two shots into his head, killing him instantly. Bo was in the car with you? Yeah. Okay. And what, Bo was, Bo was smarting off to you? Yeah. And then where did, did you shoot Bo? Yeah. With that 38? 
in the side of the head. Okay. And then I did his mouth too. Oh, you shot him twice in the head? Yeah. Okay. Because they're too sassy. Now, it's hard to imagine what Julie's thought process must have been as she looked at her dead son sitting in the passenger seat next to her. Did she feel guilty, or was she too far gone for that? Sadly, the latter seemed more likely as she wasn't done with the killing quite yet. No, she still had her daughter to take care of. With Beau's body still warm by her side, she drove back home where she planned to finish the task at hand. Once there, she left the car in the garage and headed into the house where Calix was sitting at her desk doing homework. Of course, the young girl had no idea what her mother had just done and certainly wasn't aware of any immediate danger she was in. That was why she didn't even bother to look up from her computer when Julie entered her bedroom and fired a single shot directly into the back of her head. She then put a second bullet into her daughter's mouth. What was she doing? Um, she was at homework on the computer? Yeah, you came up behind her with what? Okay, and what happened? I shot her in the back of the head. Because she was running her mouth at you? Yeah, and then I shot her, I think, in the, in the mouth. Okay. That's what I wanted to shoot her. Why did, you, why did you want to shoot her in the mouth? Because it angers me so much. Her mouth angers you? Yeah. Well, what happened after that? Um, How did she end up in her bed? Oh, I carried her. You carried her over there? Yeah. Okay. You didn't want to leave her up at the computer where she was at after that happened? No. Um, no? You took her and put her in the bed? Did you cover her? Yeah. Okay. All right. At least there was a small silver lining in the fact that, unlike her brother, the 16-year-old never saw what was coming and as a result would have never felt a thing. With the deed now done, Julie could set about carrying out the final act of her plan, which was to kill herself too. Before she did that though, she first went to the linen closet and picked out a pair of blankets. She took one of them to the bedroom where Calix was and covered her with it, then went back out to the garage with the other and draped it over Beau's lifeless body. Following that, the now completely deranged mother sat down at her computer and composed an email to her husband that read, quote, Get home soon. We're waiting for you. Was this a sign that she was goading Parker with a cruel final goodbye? Or was it merely a sign she had entirely lost grip on reality at that point? The truth is hard to tell, and the following email she sent to her mother and siblings doesn't really paint a clearer picture either. In that correspondence, Julie did state that she was feeling suicidal and that she was tired of the kids always talking back to her. Of course, she made no mention of their deaths and didn't show any remorse about killing them. That said, she did state it would all be over soon, something that, when her family read the email, instantly caused them to fear the worst. Before they had a chance to read her message and try to contact her, though, she had ventured out into the backyard where she sat by the pool chain-smoked, and wrote out in detail her reasons for doing what she had. What she wrote? Well, it would contradict her later claim of having been worried about future mental health problems with her kids. After describing the murders in a very matter-of-fact manner, she stated she had killed them both as they were too mouthy and kept talking back to her. It was the same thing she would tell investigators in her initial interrogation. 
Clearly, it was going to be difficult to get any kind of consistent and logical reasoning behind her actions, as if there ever could be a logical reason behind killing your own offspring. What her statement did add further credence to, though, was that she was completely insane by then and couldn't be held accountable for her actions, something her lawyers would later use in court to try to get her out of serving prison time. But if Julie had her way that fateful evening, she would have never been sitting in a courtroom at all. No, her plan was to die right there and then, something she set about doing when after sending one last rambling and incoherent text message to a friend, she attempted to overdose on prescription pills. We got another day of NBA action, and with FanDuel, every night is a watch party, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In the end, however, that didn't kill her as planned. By the next morning, when Julie's mother read the email she had been sent the day before, her daughter was still alive. Of course, given the amount of pills she had taken, she was only barely, and that meant when her mom called the house to check on her well-being immediately after, she wouldn't be able to answer the phone. When a call was then made to the kids in order to see if they had heard from their mother, they obviously wouldn't be able to pick up either. With her mind now jumping to the worst possible conclusion, Patty Peterson Powers felt the only thing to do was to contact the police. When she got a hold of them and explained the situation, they agreed to go out to the Schenecker household and check out the situation. Now, it should be noted that these kinds of calls are not entirely uncommon, so it's unlikely the officers who were assigned to the wellness check expected to find a full-blown murder scene once they arrived. Upon reaching the front door at 7.45 a.m. that morning, they noticed a message taped to it telling the family who the kids usually carpooled to school with that they were going to be away for the weekend. Obviously, this immediately raised suspicions given the nature of the email Julie had sent the night before. Feeling like lives could be at risk, the officers walked around to the enclosed pool area at the back of the house and there they found the mother of two laying unconscious on the ground with her clothes soaked in blood. After seeing that, they realized something terrible had happened, so they entered the garden to see if the unconscious woman was still alive. And to their surprise, she was. They may have initially believed that she was a victim, but that idea was quickly washed away when she gave them permission to enter the house. At that point, realizing the final part of her plan had failed, Julie apparently felt no need to hide what she had done. After all, it wasn't as if people weren't going to find out anyway. That was why she led the two officers into her home where they first discovered the body of Calix still laying dead in her bedroom, with the only thing now different being the fact that she had been moved from her desk chair to her bed. 
After that, the killer led officers to the garage where 13-year-old Bo remained strapped into the front passenger seat of the family minivan, the blanket covering him now fully blood-soaked. When asked what had happened, Julie felt no hesitation in explaining that she killed them both and attempted to kill herself. When police asked her why she had done it, she was recorded saying, quote, My daughter, the 16-year-old, is mouthy. She calls me names. Clearly, this was a case of murder, and given it had been apparently planned out ahead of time, it was murder in the first degree. After reporting the incident to their superiors, the two officers on scene arrested Julie and waited for a team to show up to further investigate the house. During the investigation, it didn't take long to lead to a Smith & Wesson box and instruction manual lying in the bathtub, along with 15 live rounds and five spent ones next to it. On top of that, Julie's journal was discovered on her bed with the final entry reading, quote, I have really lost my mind. I'm so sad. My two babies. It was too easy to take them out. Of course, attempts were made to keep the situation quiet from the public at first, at least until a complete picture could be pieced together of why exactly the murders had taken place. But it didn't take long for the neighbors to become aware of the situation and for word to start spreading around the neighborhood. Understandably then, when they did find out, the local community were shocked as both Calix and Bo had been well-liked by everyone around them, with the general opinion being that they were two very promising children who were managing to do well despite growing up in a difficult environment. As to Julie, however, there was far less goodwill directed her way. Even if it was understood among those living nearby that she was struggling with mental illness and had been doing so for some time, it was something that no one imagined she'd be able to carry out. How could any mother, whether ill or not, ever consider hurting her children? That was an attitude that was shared by police spokeswoman Laura McElroy, especially upon reading Julie's cold and matter-of-fact description of the crime itself in her journal entries. As she put it, quote, it's hard to believe that a mother authored the notes because it's a very methodical, non-emotional description of the murder of two innocent children, of her own children. When she's describing it, it's just very matter-of-fact, devoid of emotion. On top of that, the spokeswoman also added that those same journal entries seemed to confirm that the murders had been premeditated. She said, quote, Our belief is that she didn't snap. She planned this. It was something that only made the whole thing that much worse. While the rest of the community were trying to come to grips with what had occurred, one person who was still in the dark about the entire situation was Parker. Still in Qatar waiting to come home, he wouldn't find out about the deaths of his children until his family contacted him with the devastating news. When he did finally find out, it would break him entirely as he realized everything in his life that he loved had been destroyed in a single instant. After briefly meeting with Julie in prison to inform her that he wanted a divorce, he would have no further contact with her. No one would, though. She was completely isolated from everyone other than her legal team, a legal team that eventually convinced her that, despite her prior confession, she might be able to plead not guilty on grounds of insanity. That development meant that the trial was suddenly looking as though it might not be as clear-cut as those looking for justice were hoping it would be. While Julie was awaiting trial, Calix's classmates were memorializing her by planting a willow tree on campus, something that the Harry Potter superfan always wanted to see happen as to her it represented the Whomping Willow from the series. 
It was an emotional moment of catharsis for the kids who had lost a friend. But that wouldn't make the trial process any faster, unfortunately. In August of 2012, both sides were able to successfully argue that they needed at least a year to review files found on the computer in the Schenecker home. While that delay was occurring, Parker was keeping himself busy by filing a separate wrongful death civil suit against his soon-to-be ex-wife. One he took great care to clarify to the media was not about getting any money from her directly, but it was merely about making sure she didn't get access to the family's funds in order to pay for her legal fees. Thankfully for him, he would ultimately be successful once it eventually went to court, though that day wouldn't be without further emotional scarring. In a desperate attempt to regain access to her money, Julie countered her husband's claims that she was responsible for the children's deaths by arguing it was actually him who held culpability. The way she saw it, Parker had known she was mentally ill and was clearly a danger to both herself and others. So in her mind, his decision to leave her alone with the kids represented nothing less than an act of neglect. That argument didn't hold any merit as far as the judge was concerned. No, he saw right through it. His decision meant the civil case was over and Julie would not have access to the Schenecker family funds. The only thing left to do was wait for the criminal trial to begin. That ended up happening in April of 2014, at which point, fully aware Julie was going to attempt to get off on grounds of insanity, the prosecution decided not to pursue the death penalty as they felt it wouldn't go over well in a court when aimed at a woman who was mentally ill. Instead, they merely focused on trying to get her prison time, all while on the other side of the courtroom. It seemed that that was where the suggestion first came about that she had killed the kids out of fears they'd inherit her mental illness. It was thought that that might play well in terms of making her seem incapable of being held responsible for her own actions. But that wasn't all, because there was also the suggestion that killing Calix and Bo had been necessary as there was sexual abuse happening to the children. It was thought by their mother that the best thing to do would be to end their lives outright. Now, it should be stated that there was zero evidence to suggest sexual abuse was going on, and when asked about who was doing this abusing, Julie would refuse to say. It appeared far more likely that the claim was either another delusion of Julie's increasingly fractured mind, or it was simply an excuse she was trying to use on the court. Either way, it didn't do much good because despite expert witnesses selected by the defense pushing the fact that her bipolar disorder meant she wasn't in control of her faculties, the prosecution countered by calling Julie's week's worth of journal entries proof enough that the whole thing had been carefully calculated and premeditated. As they argued, Calix and Bo had been killed by their mother as a means of trying to punish Parker as he was spending too much time away from home. The evidence they used to sell this theory was that written on the family day planner on the day he was due to return from his tour in the Middle East, Julie had left a note which read, quote, Bo is in the van, Calix is in her bed, tried to make her comfortable. Clearly, the insinuation was that she wanted her husband to find the bodies of the children in order to inflict maximum grief. As if that wasn't chilling enough, it also came to light at the trial that, after shooting her kids... Julie had attempted to contort her daughter's face into a smile. 
it would probably come as no surprise that that did little to endear her to the jury, and after less than two hours of deliberating, the eight men and four women found her guilty of two counts of first-degree murder on May 15, 2014. It would later be put by one juror, quote, we had some discussions on how do you really know what is going through someone's mind, but we kept coming back to what the law states constitutes insanity. Being mentally ill is not the same as being insane. That's right. Obviously, anyone who executes their own children is not in their right mind. But in order to not be held responsible in a court of law, you have to have not known that what you were doing was wrong. The fact that Julie made an effort to keep her gun purchase a secret shows that she knew that what she was doing wrong. The fact that she had planned the killings out in advance and kept it a secret meant she knew it was wrong. With her pleas of insanity outright disregarded, it meant that when the judge brought down his sentence, it would be for two concurrent sentences of life behind bars. With her fate sealed, the only thing Julie could do was address the court and offer what she felt was an apology. As she put it at the time, quote, I apologize. I apologize to everybody in this courtroom. I take responsibility. I was there. I know I shot my son and daughter. I don't know why. I understand that there are people who are affected by this who may have just read about it in the paper. Or maybe a child looked at their mommy and said, Mommy, are you ever going to shoot me? I know this could happen and I apologize for what happened. What I did. Okay. After the trial, Parker was able to handle the situation with as much dignity and grace as is possible because, while he would take no questions from reporters during the proceedings, afterwards he would release a statement to the press which signified both his happiness with the results of the trial and his desire to keep the memory of his children alive. In his own words, quote, Today's decision, for many reasons, gives my family a great sense of relief. As I have consistently mentioned for the past three years, the most important thing in all of this is Calix and Bo, my lovely children. My smart, beautiful, loved, and missed children. Giving them a voice has been my priority throughout this process. As recently as February of 2023, Julie Schenecker was still attempting to appeal her conviction and obtain her release. On this particular occasion, the attempt was blocked by the appellate court, meaning the now 50-year-old will stay where she is for the foreseeable future. We can only hope that continues to be the case as time goes on because, while it's undeniable there were mental health issues which warped her view of reality, it was no excuse for the utterly horrific act that she carried out. There are still some small positives that can be taken from the whole incident. If nothing else, it does shine a light on the increased need for proper care to be given to those who are struggling with psychological problems. The Schenecker children are far from the only two people who have been killed by someone while in a deep state of depression, and if things continue in the same vein, they certainly won't be the last. So with that in mind, we can only hope the public conversation about mental illness becomes more and more open as time goes by, and that the stigma around it continues to decrease because, if more people can get the correct treatment at a crucial time, preventing them from turning into full-blown monsters, that would truly be the best way to honor Calix and Bo's memory. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE.
That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty. And luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.